Welcome to Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. Thanks for joining us. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today is Dallas, Texas's indie music godfather. He is one Salim Nirala. Salim is an artist, a record producer, and co-founder of Palo Santo Records. As a solo artist, Nirala has long mined the terrain between catchy and devastating. Rolling Stone has called him a singer-songwriter who can stop time. As a producer, Nirala has worked notably with the old 97s, Rhett Miller, the Death Ray Davies, and the Damwells. His work on either side of the sound booth has won an armful of Dallas Observer Music Awards. Fans of Salim's discography will be pleased to know he has a plethora of new music, including five EPs slated for release over the coming months. The first one, Jesus of Sad, was released in January to coincide with a handful of East Coast dates opening for his friend Rhett Miller of Old 97s. Let's Be Miserable Together, which was just released on May 8th, is the second of five planned EP releases by the Texas songwriter slash producer. Salim has made a career of bucking trends, but with his latest collection of songs, as well as another full-length LP in the works with Marty Wilson Piper of The Church, not to mention the esteemed roster of acts on his ever-expanding label, it would seem that his steadfast resolve is paying off. Today, Salim and I will be discussing The Beatles and their 1968 record commonly known as The White Album. It is safe to say that this record changed the course of popular music forever and how an album can be presented to the public at large. Our conversation was recorded on a lazy April afternoon with some birds happily chirping in the background. My hope is you will appreciate the ever-present, laid-back quality of our conversation. So without further ado, our guest, Salim Nirala. That's me. Record, record producer. Maybe the one and only in America. Maybe the one and only. You're, you're a record producer. You're a musician. You're also a co-owner of a record label. Yeah. Palo, Palo Santo. Yeah. It's, it's really nice to be able to sit down and, and talk with you on this uh, Monday afternoon in April. Well, yeah, it's, it's nice to talk to you as well. It's a, it's a lazy afternoon because every day is a lazy afternoon right now it is so. we're kind of trapped in our own skulls yeah trying to figure out exactly when this virus is going to subside when we're going to get back to normal it's it seems to be anybody's guess yeah well in in the meantime we can uh we can just have uh conversations about the beatles let's do that <laughs> we're, we're going to be talking about the white album today it's the it's the ninth offering from the Beatles. What made you choose this particular record from the Fab Four? Uh, well, it's it, it, this record is pretty much responsible for my um, my life of uh, music. Uh, so it's it's the the Beatles' fault 
a Beatles' fault, basically. Or, <laughs> that, uh, it's their fault. I'm blaming them that, for me uh, taking this path. And, and so this this is a record that uh, I fell in love with, like, nine-ish, you know? So that would have been, like, the mid-70s. Uh, and my... Uh, grandmother had taken me to a uh, department store called Kmart. I don't know if you, if you know, Kmart is even still around. There are, there are no more Kmarts than that I've seen in Texas, but, uh, and they had a, they had a, a section in the department store with records. And she told me that I could pick out one record, which, you know, I don't remember why I must've had like a birthday coming up or something. Cause it, like had to be a reason why I was getting a record. Uh, and that one stood out because of the cover, uh, which um, now I'm kind of amused by because I think it's pretty weird that, you know, as a kid I went to the cover with nothing on it. But I remember thinking, like, there were lots of covers that didn't appeal to me, especially, like, heavy metal covers, like I could tell right away, like it was silly music because, you know, some guy with an ax on the cover or a girl in like a chainmail bikini or like none of that really appealed to me. I, I, I liked the album with nothing on it. Um, and then when we got home, uh, I was, my brother who was 18 months younger than me and, and ended up, you know, growing up to be a musician as well. We were both uh, too too uh, inexperienced to even operate the uh, record player, so we would have our mom, you know, flip the sides for us, and uh, it just was. We just played it over and over and over again, and and uh, I can kind of see now how an album like that would appeal to kids because there's lots of songs with like animals in them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you've got, you know, Rocky uh Rocky Raccoon which was uh, a big favorite of ours because of the the story uh and then, you know, even Piggies which later on I learned was, you know, not about actual pigs. Uh, yeah. When, when I was a child, <laughs> you know, we just thought he was singing about piggies. Uh, and um, I do have a, also like fond memories of our mom when uh, White uh we do it in the road, came on. She would, she came out and she's like, "Oh my gosh, this is horrible!" And and she said, uh, "What do you think this song is about?" And my my brother and I were just like, oh, it's definitely about pooping. It's about pooping in the road. <laughs> Which obviously now, uh, no, it was not about that at all. But, <laughs> but a logical conclusion. Yeah, sure. as children, we were sure, and we were very amused. Why, you know, why would someone write a song about that? That was a very risque, you know, thing to mm-hmm. uh, suggest. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of how it all started. Was was just um, I didn't realize any of the the things that as I got older and learned about music, became a musician. 
you know, all the things that we can talk about that are mind blowing about it. Really, it just started on the, you know, as far as the, the way the child reacted to it was all of these great songs and like the variety. That's the thing that really jumped out and still has its, you know, grip on me today. Uh, like it, it kind of, I think the big lesson from the White Album right out of the shoot for me is that look at all the things that, you know, pop music, rock and roll, whatever you want to call it, can do. Like you've got Helter Skelter on this, you know, this blistering, you know, terrifying track on the same record with uh, Julia where John is singing about his mother and it's beautiful melody and finger-picked guitars. And and then you have Revolution, you know, number nine, tape loops, avant-garde sound, and, you know, and all these other things. It's like that to me gave, that set the template to me of what, you know, popular music should be. Like you should never just, be in one sort of category and actually over the course of my career I've realized too how detrimental that's been to me achieving a a certain popularity because it's really confusing to people but the Beatles were like on the White Album it's like anything goes right right anything goes and they had the ability to do that it was exceptional you know so uh I think, you know, it still stands to me as their greatest album, not just because it was, like, my, like, you know, the first childhood album that had me. It's like, now that I've, because I love all their albums, but once I understood the production and all, everything else that's happening, like, I just think the White Album is is a masterpiece. It's, It's like crazy how how great it is. We are chatting with Salim Nirala here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka about the Beatles' White Album. And we know the Beatles, you know, as the Fab Four. Generally. Yeah. Can you just tell our listeners if they just have been just living in a cave for the past several decades... <laughs> who who comprises the Fab Four, and who has produced the majority of these quintessential records that are pervasive throughout the course of popular music? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'll, tr- I'll try to imagine myself talking to my parents, actually, because one of the things that blew my mind um, when I was a kid were my parents weren't really aware of the Beatles. Like, my dad was a Syrian immigrant. He was raised in a, in a very small uh, village called Jeble. And so he didn't know about the Beatles. And then my mom was like a classical music um, nerd. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. she, and even though she was the right age to have, you know, dug the Beatles, she didn't know about them. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to imagine, you know, what I would maybe say to my parents because cause they were... <laughs> probably two of the only people on the planet in the 70s that didn't know who the Beatles were. 
Okay. Um, well, so the Beatles, uh, what's exceptional about the Beatles, one of the things that struck me um, at first is I think the Beatles in some ways were the first boy band because they were four very charismatic, uh, good-looking, charming individuals who kind of, when they first started playing, girls went nuts and lost their minds just because of, you know, how adorable they were. But it turns out that once the industry let them in as sort of the first boy band, even though they played guitars, they completely subverted everything because they, they turns out they were all, you know, aspiring artists and intellectuals and pushed the boundaries of popular music. So I think one of the the most interesting things about the Beatles to me is the way that they got in and then just completely stood everything on its head. And then uh, the other thing is that they had three really good singers. Uh, John Lennon, who played rhythm guitar, was great, probably... I mean, he's my favorite rock and roll voice of all time. I mean, he could belt him out, but then he could also sing, you know, the tenderest of ballads and move you to tears. And then Paul McCartney, the bass player, had the same ability. Like, both of these guys alone, if they were in another band just by themselves, would have been by far the best singer in you know whatever other band they were in, put them in the Hollies or the you know the Kinks or whatever. I mean you know sure. like any of these guys. Would. But then to have two of these guys, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, yeah. both in the same band together. Are you kidding me? Just the yeah. vocal ability. And on a lot of their early singles, they're singing in unison, or then breaking into you know harmony, constantly singing together. Uh, but on top of that, they had George Harrison on lead guitar, who also had a really excellent voice. I mean, he didn't have the rock voice that Paul and John had, but they didn't need that. What he did have was a very interesting voice that was completely his own. And that's the other thing, too. All three of these guys had voices that were absolutely original. Like Nobody else sounded, sounds like Paul McCartney, but Paul McCartney. Same with John Lennon, same with George Harrison. And then on top of that, their drummer, Ringo Starr, not only had a hilariously charming personality, but he had a very interesting singing voice as well. And even though he wasn't like a singer per se, it had such... Um, an identity. Like, um, in the last year, my 10-year-old daughter um, has gotten really into the Beatles. It started with... Uh, I, I ended up with a new car that had satellite radio, and, and the first station we turned on was the Beatles channel, and I didn't even know there was a, a station on Sirius that only played the Beatles. And we started this game uh, where I... Who I explained to her 
well, there are four singers here. You know, can you identify which Beatle is singing? And we just started this thing, and but I had to describe their voices so that she could start trying to figure out who was singing. And I described Ringo as like, it was kind of like if, you know, the guy working on your washing machine just burst out in a song. Like, that's the way I describe Ringo. It's like, <laughs> yeah. listen for the guy that's like, in the town, where was it? You know? And yeah. Like okay, and then George Harrison's like okay, well, how does George Harrison sound? It's like well, George Harrison always sounds like he has a bit of a cold. His nose is a little bit, it's a little bit in the you know in the middle. Of, <laughs> like okay, that's how we know it's George. But she's to the point now where within ten seconds of any any song, solo song, anything, it doesn't matter whether she's heard the song or not she can identify which Beatles singing. So I'm, I've, I've only taught her that one thing, and and I'm sticking to it. That's my sole accomplishment as a parent. That's awesome. <laughs> so, but that, it just got me thinking about, you know, I, yeah. I went through that with, with my daughter as far as identifying the Beatles' voices. But uh, so, so you've got, you know, these four guys that can sing. They've all got big personalities. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's the Beatles for those of you who have no idea who they are. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like we are caught up now. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're in 2020. We're going to, you know, we're going to rewind back to 1968 here. This is the ninth record from the Fab Four. Do you, in in your mind's eye, do you think that this, particular record with 30 tracks is vastly different from what they had cut before and presented to the entire world? Or do you think that the White Album is a combination of something that they had been working towards all along? Well, all of their records were... I mean, the development that was going on was remarkable. Um, I don't... You know, I don't think there's anything on the White Album other than maybe when people heard Helter Skelter or Revolution Number 9 that was completely shocking. Like, you know, they were already on that trajectory, which is, you know, they basically basically wrote really melodic songs with interesting chord progressions and interesting choices of, you know, instrumentation and good good words and um i think maybe you know, like trying to think about you know okay where were they at before the white album what might have been surprising is they you know sergeant peppers and and magical mystery tour were so sort of really getting into psycho psychedelia and like getting crazy and white album pulled it back a touch which, which, you know, for me was nice because there was an emotional center to many of the songs on the White Album because of where Lennon, Lennon was stepping back from the like sort of LSD songs like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, What Does That Mean, mm-hmm. I Am the Walrus, you know, and he was 
going into like heavy self-discovery, kind of the precursor to like what he ultimately ended up doing on um, Imagine, you know, uh, or uh, Plastic Ono Band in particular, where he where just stripped everything out. It was like basically raw songs. Like I think the White Album for Lennon was the beginning of that that moving in that direction because, you know, Julia, for example, is like such a personal, beautiful, heartfelt song. You know, there's no, there's no kind of um, smoke and mirrors going on there with that. That's for his mother. He he wrote that for his mother, right? Yeah. Yeah. His mom died when he was young. And that's actually something he shit had in common with Paul. They had both lost their mothers, um, uh, Paul's mother died when he was a teenager, so he was a little uh, older than. But basically, they both they bonded over. They they both lost their mothers, and and let it be. I think was Paul's song, you know, for his mom, because her name yeah. was Mary. But uh, but yeah, the White Album just like I think um, Lennon moving in that direction had a little bit of an influence on. Paul, but it also what it really did was it it informed the production and and that's something you know I definitely would like to talk about because I think the White Album still stands to me as one of the coolest sounding records of all time. Like there's like the the guitar sounds on the, that record are just ridiculous. Not only like the acoustic guitar sounds, but but yeah a lot of the fuzz tones, the electric guitar sounds that they were getting. The drums are really interesting on that record. Uh, and it's, even though there's all of these songs with different styles, like the production and it's sort of the purity of the production. And in some ways it's transparency because it's, everything is just recorded really well. Like the the production isn't gimmicky in any way it's like the drums just sound like good drums and uh, you know everything is just recorded well if that makes sense and and i think there's yeah. a there's a timelessness to that like i've been chasing after that my whole you know adult life as a musician is like i just want everything to sound like the white album basically it's like just record this well and don't get any gimmicks and the other thing too is the way they recorded vocals, which um, I just got done reading this great Tom Petty book, Conversations with Tom Petty, which I highly recommend to anyone, even if you're not interested in Tom Petty. But at some point, he got to a couple questions about production and what Jeff Lynn taught hmm. them, which was, yeah. "Don't put anything on the vocal; just sing it into a great, you know, microphone and." Sing, sing it well. Don't put a bunch of reverb on the vocal. And well, where do you think Jeff Lynne got that from? He got that from the Beatles. And where did the Beatles really start doing that? They started doing that on the White Album. The White Album is the template, ultimately, I think, for like this sound um, of and what the sound is. It you know it's like old German microphones, you know, and yeah. and tubes and great compressors. And 
using reverb as an effect, you know, as a very specific thing, not as, oh, we just put reverb on everything. You know, we're putting reverb on everything to like, because it just sounds better. And and I think, so like you can even trace, I think, Tom Petty's eventual sound and aesthetic back to the Beatles' White Album. Are you referring to Full Moon Fever or Highway Companion? Well, no, I think yeah. I think what it really uh, well, I think yeah, Full Moon Full Moon Fever would be the first album I think he did with Jalen, right? Yeah, so that was the beginning of it, but it really manifested itself, I think, on Wild Wildflowers and you know that era of Teddy production when they were, you know full-on embraced all of those things, you know, and you, and Petty's vocals are very much makes like a, a Beatle record. So. We are delving deep into the White Album here with Salim Nirala on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka. And um, Salim, would you like to speak about your favorite tracks? We have four sides to choose from. Would, uh, what would you like to tackle? Oh, man, that's a... That's a tough one. I mean, I I have so many favorites, but like some that come to mind. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is actually "Happiness Is a Warm Gun," which I think, um, on so many levels, is just like one of the most remarkable pieces of recorded music ever. And I think I think the Beatles it took them like 128 takes, something like that, to like knock out the basic track but like um such a unique song structure you, you know like it never circles back to any one part and i'm not like we'd have to play it for you know us to count all the parts i don't know off the top of my head how many but basically i think it cycles through four or five different parts and it's just it's it's a pretty um amazing like nobody's ever done anything like it like even the beatles the beatles never did anything else like it and right. uh lennon's vocal which starts out you know plaintive and soft singing you know mysterious lyrics about uh you know, a, an aloof woman, which is also another thing that Lennon, you know, often sing about that I, you know, found very moving. You know, the unattainable woman. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but then, you know, by the end of the song, like he's, you know, he's just shredding it, like his vocals, <laughs> vocal cords. So, like, all of these things just happening within the context of one, you know, song, it's it's remarkable. But I think it just, again, not only as a youngster, but then, you know, growing up and playing music kind of, like, showed you what rock and roll could do, like, what you could do with this form, you know, if you really, like, you know your imagination go and um yeah so that's one that jumps out for sure but then um some other ones that 
that jump out would be uh I really have always liked um like Rocky Raccoon a lot too. It's uh-huh. such a silly song, but it's a great story song, and the production is incredible. McCartney's voice sounds like it's just right there with you, but then you've got like the saloon piano that you yeah. can picture like a guy with a sarsaparilla, you know, sitting on top of the piano playing that little part. Um, it's a waltz, right? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. The way he, the, his vocal affectations, which are funny, like he's not, uh, I think that, so Rocky Raccoon, to me, um, it's yet another lesson. Like there are so many lessons to to be had. I've thought a lot about this, like, music, serious music that doesn't take itself too seriously. And the Beatles were masters at that. Like, now somewhere in my town in Dakota, there lived a... I mean, it's not... Yeah. He's not taking himself too seriously there. But you could still have a song like that with a sense of humor um, on a record with Julia or Happiness is a Warm Gun, you know, or Helter Skelter. You, you know, the Beatles, like, the way they incorporated humor, it was masterful. You know, like, the Rolling Stones didn't have that. They just always seemed like, you know, kind of like, I mean, they're an amazing band. I'm not taking a swipe at them. But, like, there's yeah. so many incredible rock and roll bands where, like, like Led Zeppelin, for example, where it's like, where's the sense of humor? Like, where... They would never do Obladi Oblada. They would never do <laughs> Bungalow Bill. It, but and even though Bungalow Bill is like taking taking shots at you know uh, <laughs> a gun toting hunter, you know r- really a statement uh, against a certain type of person. It still is like this fun, funny sing along. And I think like the White Album really was the pinnacle to me of the Beatles incorporating their great sense of, you know, collective sense of humor that they had and doing music, you know, like I don't think there's any other Beatles album that has it, is, as much of that living side by side with the serious songs, if that makes, you know, sense. Like even George did it on Piggies. Yeah. He's taking a swipe at, at, you know, aristocrats and like sort of posh people, but like it's a, it's you know, and George wasn't really of of the you know the three main writers wasn't the guy that really incorporates very much humor into his music. You know, he to me he would I would he read as the the straightest. Uh, in that respect, but still on the White Album, he's doing it. Yeah, <laughs> you travel back to the 18th century. I, I love the harpsichord and the acoustic yeah. guitar and and tuba on this track. Yeah, so great, great choice of instruments. And you don't see the harpsichord, you know, pop up anywhere else on the on the albums. I don't think. Um, but uh, 
yeah, you know, this is uh, other favorites. Uh, trying to Ooh. think. Ooh, let me say something real quick here sure. about the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. This, I believe, was the first appearance by Yoko Ono on Vogels. Yeah, yeah, she's in the in the and the, it's. I love the gang vocal because Ringo's voice just sort of cuts through like a foghorn. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's just yeah. you always. I just every time I hear that group vocal, I just hear Ringo, you know, singing away. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know. Uh, and the yeah. production on that one yeah. is is also just ph- phenomenal. I had like a, I nearly had a um, coronary when I heard the new mix that uh, uh, is it Giles Giles Martin or Giles you know Giles I guess I, forget. I think it's, it's Giles Giles yeah. okay uh-huh. uh anyway uh, because he put reverb on Bungalow Bill and I was like. Wow! <laughs> How could you do that? You know, because it. What's so great about the original mix is like it's like it's just right there. Like it's it's like a campfire song. Like John's voice is right there. The group vocal is just it's just perfect. You know, like why would you put reverb on it? And reverb on flamenco guitar. Yeah. <laughs> so. Anyway, um that was uh that was a big favorite obviously at like you know when we first my brother and I first got into the album Bungalow Bill was like probably our favorite uh track. But I still love it, you know, it's such and I I remember reading or hearing something there's some outtake where George was just saying to John like Great chords on that one, you know, really great, great yeah. chords. Um, so, but um, other favorites back in the USSR, you know, come on, just an incredible rock and roll track. Fun, again, the fact that McCartney took the Beach Boys, you know, did a send up, so clever, so yeah. funny, rocking guitar parts, the sound of the drums and the bass, like I challenge anyone to go go to a recording studio with all the ad- advancements that we've made and everything else and Pro Tools and go make a track, a rock and roll track that sounds as good as is back in the USSR. You can't do it. No. It's not gonna happen. Well I mean, the bo- the book try, try and try and try again. Yeah. yeah. The guitar tunes I mean like the guitar tunes, the guitar um Guitar tones. I love that sort of stabbing approach. I can't uh, figure out if it's John or George, but it's it's gorgeous. I think Paul is actually playing the drums on that one, and he's playing a lot of the lead guitar. And uh, you know, which McCartney was also, for those of you who don't know anything about the Beatles, like a phenomenal <laughs> guitar player. You know, he yeah. was a, he was a freak. And uh, and I think you know. Also, um, another bit of trivia is, you know, for Beatles fans, this is nothing. But Ringo actually quit during the making of the White Album because Paul had learned how to play the drums, and Ringo said every time he left the room or left his kit, he'd come back in, and Paul would be behind his drums. 
And, uh, and so Paul ended up playing drums on, I think, back in the USSR, Dear Prudence. He definitely played all the instruments on Why Don't We Do It in the Road, you know, including the drums, which are pretty cool on that yeah. song, too. Like, Paul's drums on that are, are great. Um, A minute and 43 seconds of pure bliss, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, except for our mother when we were... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pure hell for yeah. her. Um, but Because uh, I think she knew what it was really about. <laughs> she was horrified. Yeah. Uh, but that that's another thing I, I want to add. There was danger, too. So there's, so there's, there's you know, it, it, there's everything, you know. The, there's the sense of humor and fun, but also sensitive, you know, serious songs, but then also danger. And where danger came into play was why don't you do it in the road, which is definitely dangerous. Sexy Sadie is dangerous. Yeah. Um, Helter Skelter is really dangerous. <laughs> you know, not just the the tone of the lyrics and the song, but like also the the uh, just ferocious guitar and McCartney's ferocious vocal. It's dangerous. Revolution number nine, you know, Revolution nine is dangerous because it's so disturbing. And, you know, it was very upsetting to me as a kid. Um, And I still don't even really like listening to it. So, I mean, that's definitely dangerous. And what do they do right after this, you know, long, terrifying, you know, track that ends in like just you know the most grating of ways. They have Ringo sing "Good Night," oh. <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> they basically set the drummer up with a lullaby, like you know, it's just hilarious. It's the perfect yeah. ending to the song. It's like you put you know you put Ringo the clown in a in a tuxedo. <laughs> and let him send you on your way out with this, you know, with with harps and and I think there's even some um, like high operatic female, uh, you know, yeah, it's really <laughs> funny. Like I can picture John just doubled over when they were doing that song, like <laughs> like because it's a laugh. Yeah, you know, and he but wrote it for his son. Yeah. But it's it's just you know the sense of humor on the on the white album is really uh, for sure something like you know I keep circling back to um, oh your blues was dangerous like I still feel a little weird playing that one you know for my daughter because John's singing about suicide you know and. Yeah, and the eagle picking his eye and like ah, you know, it's like uncomfortable. Um, so your uh, blues reminded me a lot uh, when I first heard it. Um, that Elmore James tune hurts me too. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, John's probably influenced by that. Yeah. There's a you, you know I'd like to you know use your word dangerous here and go back to Helter Skelter for a moment. Yeah. Do you think that this was the touchstone for heavy metal music or the genre itself? 
I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think I think that that was going to happen regardless. Um, you know, there's there are some people that have said that, you know the ba- the Beatles basically invented everything to do with popular music, but I I think that you know the Kinks when they did "You Really Got Me." was the beginning of something you know I just think as things progress like so I I, I don't think Helter Skelter was okay. I just think it's something like for Paul over the years being accused of being fluffy and writing love songs and writing songs with lame lyrics I think it's something that he likes to go to as a whoa hey I, I mean I'm the guy that wrote Helter Skelter come on I invented yeah. metal you know it's like yeah it was just I don't know. I think it's just something that he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder now. And we've heard for many, many years now, been reminded that he's the guy that wrote that song. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's part of the McCartney publicity machine. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think Helder Stelter for Paul was just like, you know, he was really in zone. Like, between... 68 and 69, I think, uh, on the Beatles channel one day, they like, uh, they were, they had something on all the songs Paul wrote, including like Hey Jude and like, just, it's, it's ridiculous the year that that guy had. Like, it, probably the single most incredible year that any songwriter ever in the history of popular music has had. Like, Paul McCartney's. 68, 69 span was insane. So anybody at home that wants to go home and look up all the songs, like it's 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 ridiculous. Yeah. And Helter Skelter happened to fall, you know, in in that run, uh, which is incredible, you know, because the guy was also, you know, he wrote Blackbird, right? Which which is one of the most gorgeous. Uh, you know, acoustic based numbers and and this leads me to the next thing that I want to talk about is the genre, this genre that they invented on the White Album, which is and I still think a lot of people don't even know what it is. It's like um acoustic based music that isn't folk music. It's mm-hmm. not Americana, it's not mm-hmm. country, it's it's like what is it? The Beatles started it like what is julia and and there's a whole way of finger picking that like influenced people like me like if you listen to any of the finger picking on any of my albums i learned a certain style and it's the only and there are lots of variations in this style but it's basically a thumb and fingers thing um you may even know the name of there's a name for it but uh it's a certain type of picking but i've forgotten but anyway style is it yeah, style? it's a, it's a style. It's a, but that's something we'll look up later. But uh, okay. but Lennon and McCartney, especially Lennon, had that style down, and he only when he finger picked, he only used variations on that style. But like massively influential for me, and also recognizing later how confusing it is to music critics. Like um, for example, I put out a record a couple of years ago called Somewhere South of Sane that really incorporated that. Like, there were a bunch of songs. There are no drums, acoustic bass, a lot of the similar uh, finger-picking 
style as, you know, Julia. And nobody knew where to classify the record because it's like, wait a minute, it's acoustic. So it's, it's folk, right? It's like, nope, it's nope. not. <laughs> and yeah. so I, but this is just another thing. I go directly back to the White Album and I haven't really seen anybody talking about this or heard anybody talking about that the acoustic songs on that album um, started a whole genre to me that has, it still doesn't even have a label and people don't even recognize it. But it came out of the White Album. You know? I, I'd like to talk about some sort of recording technique, particularly on these acoustic tracks on the White Album. And starting with Blackbird, there's kind of like a tapping of the foot. It sounds like it's happening on either a cobblestone street or well, maybe a Well, McCartney's tapping his foot while he's playing the song. Is that what he's doing? Okay. Yeah. And But that's the thing. It's like, it's this natural, like, they was like, okay, we're going to mic that up as well as the acoustic guitar. And it's like, it's just this beautifully recorded natural thing. And then, um, the, there's a guy, there's a British songwriter, Stephen Duffy, who um, who we were talking earlier about. He, he yeah, yeah. did this record with Mitch Easter that I really love. But Stephen Duffy is an example of a guy who incorporated like the Blackbird, Julia style, of, all of these really beautifully written acoustic songs, great melodies, great words. They're, it's not folk music. It goes right back to the Beatles' White Album. And he's another exceptional writer that had a, a problem finding an audience because nobody knew where to classify it. Like, wait, what is this? Is this like Fairport Convention? Yeah. No. no. You know? So, yeah. Like, Blackbird um, and Julia. It's not Nick Drake. <laughs> No, it's not a Nick Drake either, no. Or like I Will. I Will is basically acoustic bass too. Like Paul is um, singing the bass part and I think, you know, like there's no, like what is I Will? You know, it's kind of almost like a Buddy Holly song, but it's like, it's 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 all acoustic. Um, Mother Nature's Son, same thing, you know, finger picking, um, I think, I don't know, you know, that one makes me think of Paul Simon and, mm -hmm. you know, Simon and Garfunkel were kind of, but, you know, they, they got lumped more into like the folk music, right? You know, yeah. even though Paul Simon, you know, had a very high sort of tenor voice. Um, but I, you know, that's another side of the White Album that's just, always been fascinating to me and like kind of overlooked mother nature's son so I, it's such a cool like there's an arpeggiated acoustic guitar kind of vibe that you're getting off of this and paul's i think double tracked his vocal on this album which makes or on that song excuse me which makes it especially beautiful yeah that's you know uh, another Another good one, but an, you know, an example of like there are so many different sonic textures. Like you know, you start the album with with this rocking, you know, back in the USSR, and you don't 
you don't ever think that you're going to end up, you know, on Mother Nature's son. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. You know, going back to the USSR for a second, um, we hear that airplane landing, and, it, you know, this is another sort of production observation. It bleeds right into Dear Prudence. Yeah. I personally had never heard that type of segue before on an album. I wonder yeah. if the Beatles, you know, were pioneers of that type of technique. Well, they were, and on this album, too, like, it's like every song is just going banging into the next song. Like, it doesn't even matter if it's, like, usually there's a rule of thumb, like, well, if you have an up-tempo song, give it five seconds if you're doing a a song with a considerably slower tempo after it. And it, and this is another thing, too, that influenced me, because, like, I'm always wanting my songs on my records to just go banging right into each other. And it's like, yeah. sometimes I've had people go, well, how are you doing that? And it's like, oh, I guess it's the White Album. <laughs> because they're just, you know, in that case, they're, you know, married to each other, and there's that going on. But then, like, just, like, I love the flamenco guitar snippet that goes from Bungalow Bill right into she's not a girl who misses much, you know, and it's like, it's such a killer segue between the, and Bungalow Bill couldn't be any different than the beginning of, uh, you know, while my guitar gently weeps, actually, it goes that, that's the I I sang the beginning of happiness is a warm god. Yeah. Uh isn't the is isn't the is the flamenco solo between Bungalow Bill and While My Guitar Gently Weeps or is it between Weeps and Happiness is Warm God? I'm going blank. I think it starts with Bungalow Bill and then it segs into While yeah, My Guitar yeah, You're right. Yeah, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's it's just a great uh you know, who would sequence those two songs together? You know, you've got like Wild Honey Pie, Paul McCartney going sort of, you know, just weird track with him playing everything, into John's sing along, campfire yeah. song, into George Harrison's While My Guitar Gently Weeps. You know? Yeah. yeah. And then uh I think, you know, that one has the only notable guest player, which Eric Clapton plays the big guitar solo at the end of the song. Um, as far as I know, there, like, I don't, no other guests come to mind. Yoko, you brought up Yoko earlier. She appears on, on, um, Bungalow Bill. And I think also you can hear on, um, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. I could be wrong there, but I think she's. You can hear her singing on that song. Um, there was uh, something else on the album that you. I, I know for sure Yoko is singing on, but uh, I mean the other thing I wonder about is this was kind of also from McCartney the beginning of this one man band thing, and I and I was talking to someone the other day about the McCartney album, his first solo album, 
being so unique because he played not only played everything, but he engineered it, mixed it, everything. One guy. And I was wondering who who did that before Paul McCartney? Like who in popular music had there been anyone that had done anything like that before the McCartney album? Because I don't know of an album I don't know how involved solely like everything. Play yeah. and and that set the template. Like there are plenty of people now since then that have ended up doing that. Like people like Lenny Kravitz or even my brother Ferris made all his records where he McCartney style, like engineered, mixed everything, played everything. And I know there are lots of you know not lots, but there's other. But was Paul McCartney like the pioneer there because? Mm-hmm. On the Beatles' White Album, um, that, as far as I know, pretty sure was the first time that McCartney had started started doing things where it was no other Beatle was on a track. It was just hmm. Paul. You know? Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's another part of you know rock and roll. Uh, History, yeah. I think, is really important because, like, kind of opening people's minds up to the, like, yeah, you can be one person and play all the instruments and even record all the instruments, um, you know. That can be a thing where I think, you know, people weren't really thinking about that as a thing. Absolutely. Until, until Paul McCartney taught us. <laughs> <laughs> he he taught us yeah. a lot of lessons along the way. <laughs> a lot of lessons, down McCartney. <laughs> yeah. We are talking with Salim Narala here on Cover to Cover with Matt Targo. We are focusing a lot on the Beatles' White Album here from 1968, their ninth record, and a double record at that. Um, Salim, we've, we've covered just about every track on here. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk for a moment about cover art. And okay. I, I'd like—I know it's kind of an odd question because we know what the we know what the cover looks like. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if we could tease something out here. So we're living in the 21st century. There's always some sort of piece of art that supports every re- release, whether it's physical media or digital. And when you look at this, you know, you, you obviously see the name of the band on the front cover, and it's some solid kind of eggshell white. What Are there any sort of images that are conjured up in your mind when you see this kind of stark presentation of, you know, what this music is? Do you think it's just a direct contradiction to the music that you are about to experience? Like, what uh, what say you? Well, I, I think um, I just go right back to how I felt as a kid, um, which... Uh, the whole package was so well done. Like when it was a gatefold record in the middle, you had four eight by 10 car portrait, you know, of each photos of each beetle that were really well shot. And then you had a fold out poster, which was a collage of them Doing, you know, and all very, I remember John Lennon, there's a shot of him in the bathtub, there's Paul horsing around. So it gave you 
such a strong sense of their personalities and where they were in their lives and also not taking themselves too seriously. Uh, you had the serious portraits where they looked cool, but then you in the collage it was just, it was like the uh, photographic equivalent of Revo- Revolution 9. Mm. And yeah, it, the, the big takeaway was minimalism on the cover, white vinyl, how cool is that? Yeah. But then you're not just doing nothing. Like if they had stopped there, I think you'd be wanting for more. It's like, who are these guys? Like, who are these artists? Like, there's nothing. It's just white. It's too much. It's too stark. It's too avant-garde. But because inside they had the fold-out poster that was so you know, full of personality and the portrait photo, you know, everything together made it perfect, if that makes any sense. So to me, it's not just about the cover. And it was another big lesson, like like popular music, rock and roll, can it, it's, it's, it's not just about the music. It's like, it's about, it has all of these possibilities, like fashion, art, photography, like, I, there's just never been anything else that, like, had all of these other things that you could do, to me. Like I, that's why I still love doing it. Like, yeah. it's not just the music. It's, and, and the white album, the packaging and the art and the whole presentation absolutely represents that you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, and, and it, and like the fact that they had the balls to just put, you know, the name of the band and nothing else on the album cover is also just, there's, it's so cheeky. It's so, of course the Beatles did that. Like, and I'm sure the record label was like, what, what? <laughs> You can't do Give that. us a clue here, guys. <laughs> you can't do that. And and I'm I'm sure there was a moment where someone, you know, it didn't matter that that they were the Beatles, you know, and that they had sold so many records that someone was like, "Are you kidding me? That that's their album cover?" <laughs> you know, it's just funny. It just really, yeah. Um, perfectly sums them up to me that like like a year earlier they do Sgt. Pepper's you know which is the most involved album cover that you anybody had ever seen you know yes. and then they yes. do the white album it's just like the, the sheer amount of just absolute you know brazenness well, brazen yeah. <laughs> to go from Sergeant Pepper's to the White Album cover. It's, just, it's hilarious to me. But, and they did it. And it's like, yeah, we did that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Pretty awesome. And, and again, if you, were, if you were following, you know, kids, me, and, to, and if we could go back in our time machine and go into Kmart, and I walked into that sea of album covers, and you, you know, <laughs> and then there's the White Album. glowing I'm different right I'm different than everything else right you know it's just uh, uh, that's pretty funny to me still 
that, you know, to think, to try to imagine what that sea of album covers look like in, you know, 1976 in Kmart, you know. Right yeah. Salim, it has been such a pleasure to, to talk with you in such great detail about the White Album. Thank you so much for coming on this program and uh, sharing how much the Beatles and this record as a whole have affected you so deeply and continue to um, to to inform your own creative output. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I mean, it's, it's yeah. been tons of fun. Like, um, you know, a conversation like this is only... Uh, has only happened in my life between like probably my brother and I. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's uh yeah, really fun to, you know, yeah. to to talk to you about it. So thanks so much for having me on. All right, my special thanks to Salim Nirala for taking some time to stop by the program today. For all of you listeners out there, thank you so very much. And please remember to hit that subscribe button in which you listen to your favorite podcasts, whether it's Stitcher or Apple, maybe Google Play or TuneIn. Take a moment to tell some friends or some family about our show. Let us know how much you like it by giving us a good rating, and that'll certainly help us appear higher in search results. And feel free to drop us a line anytime at hello at cover to cover conversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore world from cover to cover. <laughs>